awesome. Again, uh, good morning to all of you. Uh, welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus. Uh, as Steve said, or as he inferred, uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East, and uh, I'm excited to be here with you this morning, and uh, I hope you're excited as well. So for those of you who are in the auditorium, welcome. You can give all yourselves a woot woot. Woo! 11.15 in the auditorium. And for those of you, again, who are checking us out online uh, via live stream, we're actually going to give you a second to give yourself a woot woot. <clears throat> that was painfully awkward for those of us in the room, but hopefully you did that and didn't completely embarrass me in front of all my friends here that are live. So, but again, uh, thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, this morning, we are actually uh, going to be continuing in a series that we launched or that we began all the way back on Christmas Eve. And this series, as you can see, we've titled from the graphics behind me, we've titled this series, The Way of Jesus, The Way of Jesus. And so essentially, this is a series that we started on Christmas Eve, and we are planning to go all the way through to a couple weeks from now, as Steve mentioned, all the way through to Easter weekend, where we speak of and declare the truth and the reality and the wonderful reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And so basically in this series, The Way of Jesus, we have been doing kind of one thing. We have sort of one goal or one primary purpose. And the goal for this series has basically been this. We want to just look at Jesus, which is awesome. Uh, we want to put Jesus in front of us. We want to explore uh, who he was, what he did, uh, why all that matters. We want to look at Jesus's life and his ministry and all that he taught and sort of figure out for ourselves the meaning and the significance of all those things and how it would translate or impact or intersect uh, our lives here in 21st century Medina as a community of people who are trying to seek after Jesus. And so uh, the way that we've been doing that, putting Jesus in front of us throughout the series, is the unique way we've been doing that is actually looking um, at an account or kind of looking through the lens of one uh, early first century Christ follower named Luke. So Luke wrote this account of the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. It's known as the Gospel of Luke. And so we've been kind of using Luke as a means to uh, touch base with who Jesus is and why, he's, why he matters. And so uh, tonight, or this morning, what we're going to actually do is just continue on in the series going through the Gospel of Luke. And today we are going to be looking at a story or a parable, as it's sometimes called, that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 20, <clears throat> verses 9 through 19. So this story, it's often called a parable. A parable is a short story that's intended to kind of convey some shock value to communicate a couple of main truths. And it often uses imagery that the people in Jesus's original audience would have readily understood. So we're going to do that today in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. So if you brought your Bibles, we're going to go ahead and read this right away. And then hopefully after uh, we read it, I'm going to be able to set a little bit of a roadmap for you as to how we're going to attack this uh, parable or this story, like how we're going to mine it for all of the things that I think Jesus wants us uh, to understand and to learn uh, from this particular parable. So if you brought your Bible with you here today, I just want to invite you to get those out uh, and make your way to Luke 20, 9 through 19. Uh, if your Bible is on your tablet or your device, you can do the thing that, that they don't make those sounds. I know. I, I actually spent a uh, significant time in college training to become a Star Wars droid. So there you go. That's pretty cool. But uh, no, seriously, if you got that on your device, you can make your way out to Luke 20 now. If you don't have a Bible with you and you're like that tactile kind of feel, you want that, we have some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Uh, Luke chapter 20 can be found on the bottom right-hand corner of page 853 in those Bibles. So hopefully I've given you enough time with lame droid jokes uh, to stall, and hopefully you're all made your way there. So let's look at the story. Let's encounter the story that Jesus tells us here in Luke chapter 20. 
So Luke tells us that Jesus, he went on to tell the people this parable. Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard. And this man, Jesus says, rented it to some farmers and he went away for a long time. So at the harvest time, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to the tenants who are the farmers that are supposed to care for this vineyard on behalf of the owner. So he sent a servant to the tenants so that the tenants might give the servant and then back to the owner or the master some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants, check this out, look what they do to this guy. The tenants beat this guy, they beat the servant and they sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, the owner did, But that one also they beat and they do some other stuff to this guy and they treated him shamefully and they too sent this guy away empty-handed. The owner sent still a third and this one they wounded him and they tossed him out of the vineyard. Then the owner of the vineyard said, he talks to himself a little bit, he says, what shall I do? And then check out the conclusion of the owner. He says, I know what I'll do. I will send my son, whom I love, my beloved son. Perhaps these tenants will respect him. But when the tenants saw the son, when they saw him, they talked the matter over. I love how this reads in the original language. It literally means they conspired amongst themselves. They said, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. So what did they do? They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed the son. What then, Jesus asks, will the owner of the vineyard do to these tenants, to them? Well, he will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. And so when the people heard this, apparently they're privy to some things that Jesus is doing here that are shocking to them that maybe we aren't. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid, oh, May it never be. How could it be this way? Jesus then looked directly at the audience's crowd and he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? And he proceeds to quote two lines from Psalm 119. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus continues, everyone who falls on that stone that's rejected will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And then the teachers of the law and the chief priests, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, these guys, they looked for a way to arrest him immediately. Check this out, because they knew intuitively, they knew that he had spoken this very story, this very parable about them. But they didn't do that to Jesus right away because they were afraid of the people. So for starters here, just so you know, this is uh, probably the most intense or at least one of the top five most intense stories that you are ever going to get from Jesus in his ministry. Uh, And we could see why this is, right? Because this story has some ingredients and components that are foreign to us. We read too that like this story is really dark, isn't it? I mean, the tenants systematically beat and bruise and toss out servants. The tenants kill the son in this wicked act. But it's also dark in terms of what the owner does in response to the slaughtering of the son. He kills the tenants and he hands the vineyard over to others. So this parable, like if we're good readers of this, this is kind of a pretty dark situation that's happening. In addition, this parable is highly complex as it is. 
And unfortunately for us as first century readers, we have the added hurdle of attempting to try to piece together a lot of the things in this parable that Jesus's first century audience would have readily known, understood, and been familiar with. And so not only is this parable dark, it's complex, it's also very controversial, not only in what Jesus says, but also the history of interpretation by Christian scholars in this parable has seen some controversy in and among itself. So I think because of all the work that we need to do and all the things that are working against us with something like this, as I mentioned before, I think it might be helpful for us to kind of get a little bit of a roadmap here, um, a way or a direction to maybe help us untangle some of the complicated and dark components that we find in this parable. So here is how I propose we do that. What I want to do with this parable this morning is I simply want to ask three questions, three questions, and we'll take these in succession. So the progression I have for us today is three questions. Number one, what we're going to do is we are going to first ask why. I think that's really important. Why? Why specifically does Jesus tell this parable? What is maybe going on in the context in which this parable is situated in the gospel of Luke that would give Jesus a motivation to tell this particular story in this particular way to those particular people? And then the second question, after we've kind of diagnosed maybe why Jesus tells the story, then we're going to ask, well, what does the story mean? And specifically, we're maybe going to live in the first century in the second question. What would this story have meant to those who responded to Jesus's parable? God forbid, what did they know that we don't? So what does the story mean? And then the third question Our hope is from the second question to kind of pull out all of that meaning and then bring it into the 21st century, plop it into our laps. Plop is a Greek word, plopao. It's really technical. No, to plop the story in our laps, right? And ask the question, why does this story matter, right? What meaning or significance would this have for us, especially as we think about living our everyday lives in light of the dark things that Jesus tells here? All right, so let's begin here again with question number one, begin, begin at the beginning. Why, okay? Why does Jesus tell this story? Well, for starters, I do think it's gonna be important again, as I already alluded to, uh, to set a little bit of context for what's been happening in the several chapters prior to Luke chapter 20 as Jesus issues this parable. A little bit of context. Uh, see, most scholars note that since about chapter nine in the gospel of Luke, Luke, the author of this gospel, has done some careful work to emphasize for us as his readers that Jesus has resolutely set his sights on arriving in the ancient city of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, in Luke 9, 51, scholars point out that this one verse kind of serves as a hinge or a pivot point in the entirety of the gospel of Luke. Like prior to this, Jesus is going around, he's teaching, he's explaining in parables, he's healing people, he's doing ministry. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke says, as the time approached for Jesus, for him to be taken up into heaven, which Luke will outline for us in the last chapter of his gospel, as that time approached, Luke says, Jesus focused, pivoted. He said, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I actually love too how this reads in the original language. It literally reads, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. It's as though Jesus was in a number of different places. It's like the imagery is of his face turning around and meeting people's needs and going everywhere. And then all of a sudden something happens and Jesus just pivots his face. 
gets laser-focused, gets a kind of tunnel vision. It's not as though on his road and his journey to Jerusalem, he's unconcerned with things that are happening around him. But by and large, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is dead set on getting to the city of Jerusalem. And so because that's the case, we might ask, okay, what's so special about Jerusalem that Jesus would decide so fervently to set his face toward arriving in that particular city? So first of all, many of you may know this, but Jerusalem was historically the capital city of the nation of Israel, the capital city of the Jewish people where the Jewish king would sit on the throne and where God would dwell in the temple, in the adjacent temple. But in the, in the time of Jesus, Jerusalem was occupied and ruled by the Romans. And the Jewish people were subjugated or subjected to their ruthless, oppressive rule. Now, this was actually something that uh, God had predicted through his mouthpieces or his servants, the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets had shared that because of Israel's recalcitrance, because of their rebellion, because of their rejection of the relationship that God had invited them into, because of their persistent rejection of him, God said that in effect, he was going to leave Jerusalem. He was going to leave the people exposed to foreign oppressors. They were going to be conquered, whisked away into exile and subjected to enslavement under foreign powers. But now while the prophets had predicted that this would happen and the central focal point would be the city, Jerusalem, the prophets also predicted in the Old Testament that after a period of oppression, that there was going to be this hope that Yahweh, God, their God would return and that Yahweh, their God would return by sending a human king, a human liberator, a deliverer, a savior, the prophets refer to this figure as the Messiah, and the Greek version of Messiah is the Christ. And so the people of Israel waited in expectation that God would send them a deliverer who would liberate them from oppression and who would also reestablish the kingdom of God in the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, you can find this in a host of places throughout the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. But one particular spot is especially cogent for our conversation today and what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 20. So in the prophet Zechariah, in chapter nine, verse nine of his book of prophetic oracles, this is what Zechariah said about the hope of the coming deliverer of the people of Israel. He says, people of Israel, when that time comes, you're gonna rejoice greatly. It's going to be jubilation and celebration. You're going to party, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion was the mountain on which Jerusalem was established. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout with celebration, daughter, say it, Jerusalem. See, why are they so excited? We'll see. Look, look at this. Your king, your Messiah, your liberator comes to you. He's walking on the path into the city. He comes righteous and he comes victorious to win the battle against your oppressors to liberate you and free you and set up God's kingdom. He also is humble. He comes lowly. And I want you to notice this. He comes riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So guys, it should be no surprise to us that in the chapter that precedes the parable that we read in the last part of Luke 19, Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem and he's coming down this path. Luke tells us that he's riding a colt 
And in a parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew tells us that he's actually tag teaming. He's riding a colt and a donkey. And he's coming to ride through the city gates to shouts of jubilation and joy-filled celebration. Why? Well, because the Jewish people who are flanking the road believe that they are witnessing nothing less than the coming king who will rescue them. They're seeing the arrival of the long-awaited deliverer. Their hope has arrived. This is the one who would take back the kingdom and sit on God's throne in, in God's capital city. This is this epic moment Jesus is parading down. It's like Will Smith parading down the Oscar stage and just giving a little, ah, that's too soon. That was too soon. Okay, that's... That was inappropriate. Okay, so now listen, you could see the anticipation. You're like, we're seeing it. We're witnessing it. And so you might think or you might expect that every single Jewish person who's both flanking the road as well as those who are inside Jerusalem and beyond would be sharing in the excitement, right? Especially considering the reputation that Jesus has already amassed in his ministry throughout the gospel of Luke. And you would especially think that if the Jewish people are this excited and that everyone would be excited, you would especially think that the Jewish religious leaders, guys like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes, you would think that these guys would be most especially overjoyed at the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because these are the guys who had most thoroughly studied the ancient texts and prophecies. Guys like Isaiah, they would have known what was promised. But here's what's really interesting to me. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Notice here, let me give you a short catalog of the reaction of the Jewish religious leaders to the arrival of Jesus in God's capital city. At his entry in chapter 19, verse 39, some of the Pharisees, religious leaders, in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So the disciples who are joining in the chorus of celebration that Jesus has arrived, the religious leaders say, hey, Jesus, literally the word rebuke means tell him you stop it. That's enough of this. What's going on here? All this excessive celebration. What are you doing? Rebuke your disciples, Jesus. Tell them to tone it down. In the temple, as Jesus is preaching against the extortion of the people by the religious leaders who oversaw the activities of the temple and the sacrifices. In verse 47 of chapter 19, Jesus was teaching in this temple. The chief priests and the scribe, the religious leaders, and the principal men in the city were seeking to destroy him. The following day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel of God's kingdom, those same chief priests and scribes with the elders of the people came up and said, you tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? Who gives you the right to symbolically enter Jerusalem the way that you are? We don't believe that you are this Messiah. Who told you that you could act in this way? And then we even saw after the parable, chapter 20, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests, the same religious leaders, sought to lay their hands on him. And this is not some, let's lay our hands on you so we can pray for you a little bit. Like, this is like, lay their hands on Jesus to secure his arrest and get him killed. Why? Because again, we know they perceived intuitively that this very parable had been told about them. And so from this even short list, you can see the abject rejection of the religious leaders. But my question is, why? Why were these guys so opposed to what Jesus is doing? 
Why were they so opposed to what Jesus was symbolically enacting, the fact that he was the coming liberating king? Why? I think maybe the most important question that we could ask along the lines of why might look something like this. How is it that so often in scripture, this is not the only spot, it's almost everywhere. How is it that so often in scripture, the people who are most well-known for their devotion to God are so often the biggest hindrance to what God was doing? How is it that those who exercise and express the most amount of piety, spirituality, and religious devotion often wind up in scripture, and especially in this story, being cast as the biggest obstacle, the biggest hindrance to what God actually wanted to do in and through his people. And maybe as we have an eye out for the third question that we're gonna ask of this parable, the why does it matter to us, maybe we could start to think about this. That if that was the case, is it possible that as it was in scripture, those of us who may be most well-known for our devotion to God could also be or equally be the biggest hindrance to what God's doing among us and what he wants to do among us. And if indeed that is a possibility, what about this parable could we learn from Jesus to help us avoid the same kind of tragic fate as the religious leaders of Jesus's day? You see, I think this parable here in Luke 29 through 19 provides us with some clues to these very questions as well as to a reason for why Jesus told the parable in the first place. The parable, why did Jesus tell it? Well, the parable is explicitly directed to the first century Jewish religious leaders in light of their rejection of Jesus's kingship. Not in just the fact of his kingship, but also in the manner of which he said he was going to rule. And so in this story, I think we see that the story itself is, an ex, is a scathing expose and a critique of the Jewish religious leaders, those who pledged or ostensibly outwardly were most devoted to God. This is a scathing expose and critique of the Jewish religious elite of Jesus's day. So if that is by and large why Jesus told the parable, second question, what does it mean? Like what in the world is going on here. What were they picking up maybe that we might miss that would be helpful to us as we seek the third question in our survey here? So what does it mean? Well, uh, what I wanna do is I wanna begin by noting uh, that this particular parable, this story is very unique among a lot of the other stories that Jesus tells about the arrival of God's kingdom and what he was doing with it because this story is absolutely dripping with a literary device that, not other, that uh, some of the other parables don't really possess. But there's this, there's this literary device that Jesus employs in this parable, and it is known by uh, literary nerds like myself as allegory. Anybody, you guys have heard of allegory, right? So for most of you in the room, you're probably like, I know what this is. But for some of you, you're like, dude, it's been a long time since ninth grade English class, bro. Like, what are you talking about here? So uh, when you think about allegory, I think this phrase is particularly helpful. This phrase that I'm going to put up here. When you think about allegory or a story being infused with allegory, you should be thinking, this stands for that. This stands for that. And so in other words, if you're telling a story, if you have a character or you have an event or you have a setting in the story with allegory, any character or event usually has some concrete historical referent. 
Like there is a figure in real time, space, and history to which the character of the parable is referencing. This stands for that. And so scholars are nearly unanimous with this parable in pointing out that each of the elements or the components have indeed direct reference to real historical figures both historical figures that appear throughout the big or the meta story that scripture or the Bible is telling from cover to cover, but also to figures that existed in first century, century Jerusalem where Jesus is telling this parable. And so in the interest of time, I think it might be helpful for us just to plot this up in uh, not graphic form, but in a matrix, okay? And so here's what I'm gonna do. You see it here. Left column, we're going to look at the uh, character in the parable, and in the middle column, you will have scholarly consensus that the middle column is the historical reference, the actual figure that is referenced by the character in the parable. And then that last column, we won't touch that. If you want to take a picture and you want to dig in for some further study for a justification as to why this character would refer to this person, you can certainly do that. So look at this. I mean, it's kind of transparent, right? It's pretty, pretty sensible. The owner of the vineyard, right? The one who goes away for a long time on a journey, the owner is God. Now, what's interesting is uh, you might not pick this up, but uh, the idea of the owner or God going on a long journey, while we don't have a lot of time to like talk about what that is, this is a conversation that I would absolutely love to have with you in the cafe afterwards. Most likely what the uh, long journey of God, the owner refers to is the Israelite exile. They're, they're, They're longing and they're waiting for their king, their God to return. So the owner is God in the parable, but we notice in the parable that that the owner, God, hands over responsibility of the vineyard to these tenants. And the tenants are pretty clearly the Jewish religious leaders, aren't they? After all, the tenants are the bad guys in the story, aren't they? They're the wicked people. And their reaction after Jesus tells it gives every indication that they knew they they were these guys in the story. So the tenants are the Jewish religious leaders. The servants are God's messengers, his mouthpieces, his attempt to communicate with the Jewish religious leaders through the prophets, the last of which Luke had written about earlier in in, uh, the gospel of Luke and was referring to John the Baptist and his ministry, the last in the line of these messengers to try to call the Jewish religious, religious leaders back to repentance. And then the son, the son, of course, is Jesus, the king himself. He's the king himself. Now, what's interesting is notice the conclusion that Jesus draws from the parable that he tells. He links the son of the parable, come down here, with the stone that the builders rejected. So in this particular parable, uh, the son is also the stone who is going to be the principal component of a new temple, a new house for God to dwell in, in the midst of Jerusalem with his people. And we are told that the stone is rejected by the builders. Now the builders are obviously connected to the rejection of these guys, the tenants, the tenants who reject the son who comes in the vineyard. And so as a result of the failure of the tenants, These guys, as we're told in the story, are removed from the vineyard and their responsibility is given to this one, this line, others. Now, most scholars are almost unanimously in agreement that these others are Jews, ethnic Jews, as well as non-ethnic Jews, Gentiles, who will collectively come together under the authority of King Jesus to share in the inheritance, to share in the rule of the son, Jews and Gentiles together, the church. And so you would think, this makes sense. Allegory, this stands for that. We've got it, right? There you have it. That makes good sense of the story. And so we might be done with this particular question. 
But any one of you who know me know we've got about 45 minutes left, right? So, <laughs> no, not seriously, but maybe. There's actually, this, I found this so fascinating when I was preparing and studying this week. There is an allegorical, this stands for that component in this parable, in this story that Jesus tells that we have yet to account for. We have yet to account for this one component. Anybody want to venture a guess as to what we've missed? Anybody? The, the vineyard, you guys are sharp. The vineyard. This, was, this, was, this absolutely blew my mind when I was uh, prepping for the message here. The idea or the concept of God having a vineyard would have been very well known to Jesus's Jewish audience in his day. The concept of God having a vineyard shows up several times throughout the Old Testament in the books of the prophets and in the Psalms. You could see this in Psalm 80, if you want to write that down, if you're taking notes, we're not going to look at that one. You can see it in Psalm 80, but you see, you see it especially vividly or cogently, at least for our concerns and our conversation today, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah. Guys, I want to show you this this is literally the coolest moment of my life. You know, next to my wedding and my kids and, you know, all the other things that I'm supposed to say, right? Check this out. I, I want to I share with you Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5. So Isaiah is the one speaking here, and he is preparing to sing a song for us. And so just imagine Isaiah going and getting his acoustic guitar and doing his best John Denver impersonation. Or if you are a millennial or Gen Z, Ed Sheeran. Okay, so did I cover everybody in the room? All right, it's fine. So listen, listen to what Isaiah says. He says, I will sing for the one I love. Who do you suppose that might be? I will sing for the one I love. A song about his, say it, his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. This loved one planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. He cut out a wine press as well. But then this vineyard planter looked for a crop of good grapes. He looked for fruit, but alas, it yielded only bad fruit. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. This love song, look at this. Look at the vineyard owner. My loved one had a vineyard. Look what he does. He plants this on a fertile hillside. There is no better place, no better environment, no better soil than a fertile hillside by which someone could plant a crop like vines in a vineyard. He carved out the best for this thing. And then what does he proceed to do? He aerates the soil, he tills it so that he can maximize the productive potential of that which he plants. And he goes even as far as to clear it of any obstacles or hindrances. He clears it of stones, he gets rid of things that would choke the life of the plants or the vine out. And he didn't just plant it with average vines, like great value from Walmart vines. No, he plants it with the choicest of fruits. He gives it his very best. Not only does he do that, he builds a watchtower in it to ensure that thieves and robbers won't break into the vineyard and steal the produce or burn it down entirely. He's a hedge of protection around the vineyard. 
And he cuts a wine press as well. In other words, that as soon as the fruit of the vine is plucked, he is ready to have it trodden so that the good new wine can be exported outside the vineyard. Now look at this as Isaiah goes on. I want you to notice just the pain and the agony of the vineyard owner. Now you dwellers in what city? Jerusalem. And the people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Look at this. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Why, when I gave it everything to flourish, when I looked for good grapes, when I looked for good fruit, why? Why did it yield only bad? And then in verse 7, Isaiah gives it to us plain as day. He says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is God's people. It is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah are the, are the vines that he delighted in and he looked for justice, but all God saw was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but all he heard were cries of distress. So according to Isaiah here, God had established the nation of Israel just like a vineyard. And God had went out of his way to literally give it everything that it needed to produce good fruit. Now, why, we might ask, why did the Lord of hosts plant this vineyard? Do you think that he planted that any vineyard owner plants a vineyard just so he can pat himself on the back and say, oh, really enjoy my vineyard. I think I made a pretty cool vineyard. I really like this vineyard. No, why does a vineyard planter, why does the owner plant a vineyard? What's the purpose? He wants it to bear fruit. He wants it to bear fruit. And this makes total sense. But what exactly is the fruit that God wanted his people to bear? Now, for all that could be said about this, these words righteousness and justice are fascinating. For all that could be said about this and all the instances that they appear in the Old Testament, these definitions I find are very helpful and are sort of a comprehensive way of summarizing the way these terms are used in the Old Testament is that righteousness is not following all the meticulous rules of a code to earn something. More importantly, underneath righteousness means living in right relationships. Healthy, growing, productive relationships both vertically with God as well as horizontally with other people. And these relationships, what makes them healthy? Well, these are relationships, in a righteous relationship, is a relationship that is characterized by wholeness. That everything God intended for the human experience to be collectively together and in our relationships with one another is functioning the way that God made it to be at the very beginning when he created his image bearers, you and me. That righteousness is relationships that are characterized by that level of peace and wholeness, by flourishing, where everyone involved in the relationship is growing and thriving as God intended. And these relationships are characterized not by love that is a cheap sentimentality, or not by a love that refers to the affections that I get or the butterflies in my stomach when I'm in close proximity to another person. No, instead, 
This is other-centered, sacrificial, that even if it costs me greatly, I will do good to you so that you can flourish. Righteousness. And justice, yes, justice in the Old Testament absolutely means rectifying wrongs. It is moving into situations that are broken. But more importantly, justice is bringing righteous, right relationships, flourishing into environments that know none of it. Justice is bringing healing, that same healing and wholeness of righteous living and flourishing, and it brings them proactively to the broken through the same sacrificial, other-centered love that even if it inconveniences myself, I will be there for the flourishing of the worthless person. And God had said that Israel existed to spread this fruit. If you're ever wondering as you read through the New Testament, when the New Testament authors, Jesus himself, said, I want you to bear fruit, If you ever wondered what the fruit was, this is it. This is the fruit of God's people. This is the fruit of Jesus's kingdom people. And just like in the Old Testament, just like in the Old Testament, God's people here are to produce healthy, ordered, and sacrificially loving relationships in their lives amongst one another in the vineyard, and then to actively distribute those things outside the vineyard to those who live in despair and who need the flourishing hope of the love that we carry or that God's people carry. Now, I want us to look again at Jesus's parable in light of what Isaiah tells us. You see, Jesus here isn't merely copying Isaiah word for word. He's using Isaiah as a springboard and a foundation, but he is, check this out, infusing Isaiah's metaphor with new meaning in light of the current events that have happened within the past couple days in Jerusalem. He tells us in this parable that even while Israel was suffering in the pains of exile, the good God who had given the vineyard everything it needed to flourish had not completely abandoned his vineyard project. Because the owner, according to this parable that Jesus tells, the owner had specifically arranged for managers, these tenants, to continue to cultivate righteousness and justice in the vineyard while he was away. And this would have been a business practice that was well known in the first century called absenteeism. And so under the normal healthy absenteeism circumstances, the good tenants who had charge over the vineyard knew that the authority and the power that they possessed as stewards, not owners, but as stewards of the property was exclusively to be wielded for the master's interest in growing the fruit. That whatever power the tenant farmers legitimately had because they were affiliated and connected with the owner of the vineyard was power not to seek their own interests, but power to seek the interests of the master and the growth and the production of his vineyard. And so we see that as Jesus tells us that the first servant comes and was abused and mistreated by the tenants, the religious leaders, we immediately start to get a nausea that develops in our stomach. We're like, something's not right. The relationship has broken down between the tenants and the owner. And then the initial feelings of trouble 
just become ratcheted up with each passing servant that comes expecting fruit from the vineyard. Notice that each servant is treated increasingly with disdain than the one who had preceded him. And then this in the story, if we're careful readers, reaches full-blown horror when we read what the owner plans to do to send to his one and only beloved son. And his readers were like, no, no, don't do that. Are you kidding me? Can't you see the pattern of these guys? They've rejected you time and time again. Why? Don't send the son. Don't send your beloved. They're going to kill the heir. And so as engaged readers, then our worst fears are realized in the story, aren't they? The tenants who were responsible to the master, they kill the son, which for Jesus is a latest in the line of predictions throughout the gospel of Luke that the religious leaders will betray him and have him crucified. And why will Jesus be crucified? Well, I think this gets more to the heart of the meaning of the story. You see, in masterful storytelling artistry, guys, Jesus literally is the greatest storyteller in the universe that has ever existed. Jesus, without even saying it, gets the point, I think, vividly across. And it's this. The tenants who had responsibility forgot their role. The tenants had become more enamored with their own power, their own authority, their own sense of being in charge over the vineyard. They had forgotten their role. That role that they initially had that was rightfully theirs was drowned out by the gratification that they enjoyed because of their position of privilege. They became so much more enamored with the privilege, the power, and the status that came with their authority rather than the fruit that the owner wanted to bear through them because he legitimately gave the authority to them in the first place. I think Jesus is saying here that the religious leaders, they missed his kingship because they exchanged the dignity of their purpose that God the owner had given them for the deception of power, for the, the deception of privilege, for the deception of status and of influence. And when that happened to these Jewish religious leaders, this unbelievably patient God of Isaiah 5 and of this parable, this unbelievably patient God had no choice. He had no other recourse but to remove them from authority and to hand the vineyard over to others. Now notice here, what Jesus says is not other tenants. So in other words, not other religious leaders, not some group of Christian religious elite, but no, he just says the generic others. And I think this is important. And I think Jesus is saying this, that it's not just a group of religious elite now that own charge over God's vineyard. That has been extended to all followers of Jesus. That all followers of Jesus have now a commission to produce the fruit of righteousness and justice in our relationships with one another and to export those things outside the vineyard for our good master, God himself. That is, I believe strongly for you and me, what this parable is all about. 
So if that's what it means, why does it matter? Why does it matter to us? Because sure, Jesus might be saying something specifically about the religious leaders of his day directly, but I think we would all agree that he is equally saying something to us today. And guys, I've got to be honest with you, as I studied this parable this week, as I really did the best job I possibly could to allow my own heart to be pricked with the truths of this parable first, I just became increasingly devastated at what I found in the darkness of my own heart. You see, I claim to be a Christ follower. And if there's anybody that looks and smells like a religious leader today, it would be Pastor Seth, right? And I gotta tell you, when I read this parable, I thought, I'm part of God's people. And so whatever authority, whatever gifts, whatever abilities, whatever thing and resource that I have at my disposal, those things ought to be used in God's vineyard for his glory. That's the way it should be, yeah. And yet, I don't know about you guys, especially for those of you who follow Jesus in this room, I find that there are so many times in my life where I drift away from the glorious responsibility that God has given me as a caretaker of the vineyard designed to take righteousness and justice outside our walls into the world around us. And I find that I drift and I just really enjoy and love and get sick and fat and drunk on my own privilege and my own status in God's kingdom. And I gotta tell you, there's one pastor and writer that I read this week that read my mail on this It convicted me so deeply as a follower of Jesus in light of what Jesus tells and I think is saying in this parable. This pastor said, the parable itself, Seth, is a powerful picture of what sin looks like in your life. Seth, God has given you all kinds of resources. Seth, God's given you your family, He's given you your friends. He's given you intelligence. I got a lot of that. He's given you personality qualities. Not so much of that. (laughs) God's given you experiences, Seth. God's given you spiritual gifts, health, etc. The list goes on and on and on. What more could God do for his vineyard to produce fruit? And Seth, you were given all these things in order to serve God, to bear fruit for him. But Seth, you have to remember that sin tempts you to live your life as if you're the owner of these things, not the tenant. Sin, this cancerous disease within you, is living as if we make the rules in God's vineyard. Seth, that you would put all the means of production to work to serving yourself and your agenda agenda and your notoriety. In the terms of this parable, sin is most basically acting as if you are the owner when you are really just the tenant. So let me just say, if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, I pledge to be one. If we're on the same team here, I think Jesus might be, and I hope he is reminding you of what he has made abundantly clear to me in my own life and heart and my tendencies. Because the reality of being a part of God's vineyard, 
man, has some glorious benefits, doesn't it? Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means that Jesus has generously done everything to bring you into his kingdom vineyard and he has lavished you and continues to with his great sacrificial love. And if you're a follower of Jesus, when you said yes to him, that means you certifiably, truthfully, amen and amen, became a beneficiary of God's kingdom And you are invited to glory and revel in all of the salvation benefits that are yours because of what Jesus has done and because of your connection to him by faith. Those things are true. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a part of God's chosen people. God chose you in Christ. It means that you are adopted into the father's family because of what Jesus has done. By his blood, as Hebrews will say, he has created a new and living way that we can boldly approach our father with confidence because of what Jesus has done. We have that. If you're a Christ follower, it means you have amazing authority and privilege and status because you are Jesus's kingdom people. And let me just say too, If you are not a follower of Jesus in this room today, everything that I have described to you, every benefit, every privilege, every joy-filled moment and feeling that is available, that Christ followers have, is available to you right here and right now. Why? Two things. Because Jesus died to put your brokenness away when he died on the cross. And he rose again so that you might live a new, empowered, and transformed life for him and his kingdom. That's available to you. So if you are not a follower of Jesus today, I would implore you, I would beg you, I would plead with you. It simply is a response of faith and trust to what Jesus has made available to you because of what he's done. You can enter the blessings and the benefits of God's kingdom vineyard by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus in the room or who profess to be, while God desires to delight or for us to delight in our salvation, the one that he has certifiably given us in Jesus Christ, I think also this parable is a sober warning, a sober reality for us to really think through at a deep level this morning. That as followers of Jesus, that yes, we were chosen but we weren't chosen just to enjoy in the privilege and the status and the dignity and the authority of being saved. We aren't chosen to sit around and revel in our salvation. God has an ultimate purpose for Christ followers that's so much bigger than that. Enjoy it, exalt in it. God's given it to you. But hear this if you hear nothing else, that being chosen isn't as much about enjoying your salvation and sitting around and doing nothing. Being chosen is being chosen for a purpose. Being chosen is being chosen for mission. If you're a Christ follower, it means that God chose you to bear the fruit of righteousness and justice in the community of Christ followers as we practice those things with one another. 
but also for the strategic honor of the king to export those things outside our walls and into our community around us. We are actively, as followers of Jesus, called to live in right relationships and to bring the light and the hope and the healing of Jesus to the darkest places of our world. And so as the band comes up and as we close out, What I want to do is, or what I could do is maybe give you a series of suggestions to practically apply something like this to your life. But I actually think that that might uh, honestly shortchange some of the work that I think the Holy Spirit wants to do in the hearts, especially of followers of Jesus here this morning. And so rather than uh, continue to maybe give you some suggested practical application, I think maybe it would be best for us to allow God's spirit to work internally in our own hearts and our situations and circumstances to help us discover where we might, as followers of Jesus, have drifted away from the great and noble purpose that he has extended to us as Jesus's followers and those who do enjoy the benefits and are recipients of God's kingdom vineyard. I think the best thing we could do this morning is to, during the time of worship, as we praise this great God who's rescued us, to ask God by his Holy Spirit to do that heart work within us, to do kind of a Psalm 139 kind of thing where the psalmist says, search me, God, know my heart and try me, know my anxious thoughts, find the wickedness in my own heart, my sense and tendency to drift, and then lead me in the way of everlasting. And so what I would invite you to do is as we worship the great God who offers rescue in Jesus Maybe we could just reflect on a couple questions. These questions aren't magical. These are intended to just be a catalyst, a starter for you to do that work in your relationship with God. Questions like what gifts, resources, and relationships has Jesus graciously given you? And how are those things, as you recount them, the blessings and the goodness of God and his grace toward you, how are you leveraging those things not for your glory and fame, but for his glory and his purpose rather than your own notoriety, status, and privilege? And maybe what would it look like for you to bring the fruit of righteousness and justice, right relationships, and moving toward the worthless and hurting person into the broken and hurting places first in those around you, in your neighborhood, in our community, in our region, and then ultimately as a church banded together, naming the name of Christ together to bring those same things of righteousness and justice into the world around us. I invite you to do that. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we wanna thank you that you are the gracious God, the owner of the vineyard. And God, in fact, you are the creator of all and you own the cattle on a thousand hills and everything in this creation is yours. It's rightfully yours. And God, we wanna thank you for graciously extending to us and mercifully extending to us your son your son, Jesus, who died, that we might have sin put away and who rose again, that we might walk in newness of life. So Jesus, we wanna thank you for all that you've done that as we say yes to you, that we do enjoy salvation. We do enjoy life. We do do enjoy all the benefits and the privileges that you extend to us because Jesus is good. Jesus is king. Father, we are asking right now, especially for those of us who claim to follow you, we're asking that you 
would by the spirit of your son Jesus that you sent into our hearts, would you help us interact with you? And would you help us understand where our hearts might have drifted from the great and noble purpose that you've extended to us because we are your children and we're your tenants in the vineyard. And would you do that work as only you can do? Holy Spirit, would you just ignite the reality and the challenge? And would you also bring the reality of the hope and the healing and the confidence that comes when we confess those things to you because you are faithful and good to cleanse us from unrighteousness and to lead us into producers of righteousness and justice. Father, we give these things to you and we're asking that you would work with us right now in this place. And we say it in Jesus' name, amen.